Hi, I'm Rodney Edwards, and welcome to Human Nature. In this podcast, I'll be joined by a special guest for a thought-provoking conversation on life, emotion, grief, sadness, on making decisions, on struggle, and on accomplishment. In this week's episode, Joe Duffy, a father, a husband, a son, a brother, and one of Ireland's best-known radio personalities. He is a man who wears his heart on his sleeve, and this is his story. I still, still find it difficult to talk about it. To knock on the door and the mother opens and you have to tell her that her youngest son is dead. I'm, I'm, I'd be very insecure. That's the other thing, which is I, I'd never have a sense of um, that, I was in, uh, that, it, that I was entitled to a job. I think Trump is... It's, it's monstrous. He is a monster. It's just we Vladimir Putin, uh, who's another criminal. But Boris Johnson has been proven to be a windbag. All, all I can see at my funeral is, apart from my wife, obviously, is um, the three children shouldering the coffin. With Joe Duffy, it's really good to see you. Thank you for doing this. Cheers, Rodden. You're very welcome. We share a mutual friend in. Freya McClements. Yeah, you wrote, great person, yeah. You wrote a book with her last year. One of the best strokes of luck I've ever had is meeting Freya. That book, Children of the Troubles, would not have been finished without her. I was close to despair, convinced I'd never get it done. And then I met Freya and her her, her daily phrase to me was, we'd have a Skype every day around five and our daily phrase was, we're getting there, we're getting there, we're getting there. Such an important piece of work as well. Yeah, I think so. And I really think it's um, the fact that it's a book and it's really well produced and by Hachette, it's a substantial book, as you know. And um, it, the book, that's the reaction we got from relatives. That the book was a, a fitting memorial, like people could pick it up, they could read about different years, they could read about different children, unfortunately, who were tragically killed and the troubles um, and a book as I realised when I wrote the previous one the children that were killed in the Easter Rising who'd never been even mentioned let alone memorialised 40 of them um, that the relatives who were still alive which is very few regarded that as, a, as an important uh, remembrance and the other thing we were really conscious of because of Children of the Rising I wrote Children of the Rising 100 years after the Easter Rising that was way too late because children don't have children children don't have children they have their family tree goes outward. They, their brothers have children or their sisters have children. So it becomes nieces and grandnieces. And then uh, over the generations, it can, it can dissipate because they don't have direct descendants, obviously, because they're so young. What about lockdown? How has it been for you? I'm working in a medium, running radio that has become very, like all media, I think it's become very important during the, all trustworthy media has become very important during the, uh, the lockdown. I go into work every day. I, I, one sense I prefer to walk from home, but the nature of the program, live phone calls, four or five people on the line at one time, it makes it very difficult. But uh, we've been working from the radio centre, RTE, which is practically empty, but the, the other members of our team are working from home and they're, they're working well. It's a great team and it's a privilege to be presenting Live Nine at this this time. It's, a, it's the closest we get to a national conversation while we still can have a national conversation. Uh, in an ever expanding world, so it's a privilege. So I'm I'm in there. There's, now my gym is closed, and I haven't had enough swimming. Yeah, I haven't got an air to swim in the sea. 
and that uh, it wasn't a courage during the lockdown by the RNLI anyway. But anyway, I'm, I'm managing, I'm really conscious of people, one who died, two relatives who couldn't even be with them, with their loved ones when they died, three uh, others who couldn't even go to the funeral of friends since they died. I'm also very conscious of people living in small accommodation, maybe with no, in an apartment, maybe with no balcony with kids. Wow. So I'm, in one sense, I'm extraordinarily lucky. And you've been missing your mother, haven't you? She's she's 92. Mabel? Yeah, May, yeah Mabel. Yeah. I, I go up to her once a week and sit in the garden. And she's quite strict on the uh, lockdown. Though she's getting fed up about her hair. Her hair and that. Uh, um, and she, now she's been living on her own like for a long, long time. Um, so she's well used to living on her own. She has her own her own system in her house. She's been in the same house now for over 60 years in Bobby Fairman. So she she knows it inside out and where every step is and stair. And, and she's very, it's a, it's, she keeps it very well, obviously, in a very comfortable, small house. So in that sense, she's doing better than most, I think. And what's your relationship like with your mother? And indeed, what was it like with your parents? So you, your, your late father, he was Jimmy, isn't that right? Yeah, James, yeah, Jimmy. Well, my, like, I suppose there were six children. My father was in England for a lot of the time, working in the 50s and 60s, um, just in general work. So, like, I remember going up to the local butcher shop every Friday at 5 o'clock, every Saturday at 5 o'clock, where they, had a, where they had a public telephone and waiting for my father to ring from London or wherever he was. So for those first six to seven years, I didn't really see them on. And then he came back and he got a job in Ben Abbey and Mabel was, Mabel, she still is an incredible walker. Like she, she reared six children, almost on her own. Um, and relatively, we were all, there's only two years between each of us, six children all on their own. And, um, she, uh, she then went out to walk in the afternoon. She went at four o'clock. She put on her blue smock and headed over to the separate tire factory, a massive plant in, in Ballyfermot, and was a cleaner till nine o'clock and would come home, walk home. There's no, no, we'd know never had a car now. And she'd arrive home at half nine and start all over again. That's some, that's some routine, isn't it? Did that sort of mindset inspire you then in the years to come? Yeah, and, and my father was a very, I know he had his, his, his problems, but he, had, he was an extraordinarily hard worker. He'd get up at early. He had a little five, which I still have. He, he had his clock a half an hour ahead. So, so when he'd wake up in the morning, it'd be six o'clock on the clock. He knew it was half five. But he'd get up at a quarter to six, which I, which just before the lockdown, I was getting up at quarter to six. Um, and he'd be, never miss a day's work, never. And he was very strict. If you had a job, you looked after the job. You, at one stage, three of my brothers were walking with him in Glen Abbey. And uh, every morning he'd be going around the house from six o'clock on getting the three lads up and getting them to get on the bus and go into work. So he was, he was, a, he was a hard worker. So there's a, and funnily enough, I, mean, I, don't know, I don't know how these things happened. My own children, um, three of them, I was only thinking about this recently. Like, and they were never asked to do it or forced to do it. But since they were... 15 and 16, each one of them uh, piled in with a part-time job at the weekend. One of them was in Penny, uh, the store. One of them was in Eason. And one of them did, well, he went off to Australia for a year, but then he did 
when he was studying, he got a job in national car parks in Arnott or whatever. So they they were all, I don't know where they got it from, because they could have asked us for the money, they would have got it. But they have this work ethic, which they still have, actually. Well, they're 25, so they, and they're all working at the minute, luckily enough. And your father used to drink, and, and you know, that's obviously a very Irish thing a, anyway, wasn't it? That yeah, many, many Irish men and women. A lot unusual in working class area. Remember, he was born in a tenement in 1926, and he was born in the same tenement that his own mother was born in. When I say tenement, I mean the tenement room, which is hard to believe. I, I brought my children to the tenement museum to show them what life was like for my father, like an open fire with your cookie. A tea chest might be your table. There'd be maybe two big beds that they all shared. I sound like Frank McCork, don't they, Angela's ashes? I think we used to get food parcels from the McCorks and they were like, oh, I wonder who they were. But anyway, um, and like, the only, the only, you, you, there was no private space. And the other, and a lot of the time, the only public space was the public house. That's where people could go and sit and chat and, and drink, as you know, is a big part of, culture in, in Ireland and it got the better of my dad at various times but, and I believe it's between that and smoking um, led to his early early demise he died at 58 which is tragically young and he kind of had a stroke when he was 54 so for the last four years of his life he was out of war Do you think about him often? Yeah I, yeah, I do I, I, his sister is still alive Rini. And his brother, one of his brothers, is still alive. They're the, they're the only two left. And Rini's in a nursing home. They go up and anytime we go up and talk to Rini, and this Rini tells me he was really dapper growing up. He was reared. He was lucky enough. The family was so big. He was reared by a spinster aunt around the corner or across the landing or whatever. So he was the only one with the spinster aunt. So he was spoiled. She was just, she always remembers him being dapper. Always had a suit on him. Um, yeah, I do. We didn't. Uh, we wouldn't really. But dying at fifty-eight meant that I was out of my early twenties. I, I can only remember having a pint with him. If you, you know, having a drink with him ourselves. I initiated that after he had the stroke. I'd bring him down for a drink every lunchtime on a Sunday, and that's kind of so. So the relationship wouldn't have been wouldn't have been that deep. It would be between my mother. My mother was. Very encouraging. Um, even when I decided I wanted to go and have a go at Port Level Education, which not only meant money, which we didn't have, but it also meant the sacrifice of money, and that is the sacrifice of the wages that you'd bring in if you had a job. But I remember my my mother being very encouraging, my father being a little bit more sceptical. Well, what effect does alcohol have on a family and on children, do you think? Fear. That's where... It, Engenders fear because you don't know what someone is going to do when they're drunk, as they say. Um, it engenders poverty as well because of money. If you don't have, if a family like ours didn't have had more wage earner, that's why our mother went out to work. Um, so yeah, it's, it's it's a tough one. I know. I know. By the way, I've said social drinking is absolutely fine by me. I've but I know for some people it becomes a terrible, terrible disease, a terrible addiction, a cruel addiction, a cruel, cruel addiction. And um, I'm very conscious now of the lockdown. There's some people I know who are who recovering alcoholics have slipped. And it's you try and be as um, 
supportive to them as you can. You know, trying to and the 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 main person I know who slipped. He was such a giver. He was such a giver, and he will be again. That's all he did in his life, his sober life, was look after other people, be it his his, his elders or his grandchildren. And he was such. I never knew. I never knew that he had such a drink problem that he slipped during the lockdown. Your brother oh. Aidan died in a car crash, didn't he? Yeah, no, he was 25 years of age. That's been, that is without doubt the, the single biggest wound in my life is Aiden's death. Um, he was a good lad. He was a great worker, very bright. And he was the youngest in our family. And we were, myself and my brother were talking about him the other day. We often talk about him. Like he, when he was born, he had, he developed whooping cough. This would have been in 1966. And he was in a hospital and then the, my mother was sent for that he was dying and he made his confirmation when he was three months old or whatever and he got the last rites. So we nearly lost him when he was three months old. And um, then then he was with us. He was, we used, I used to mind him. I was exactly to the week, Rodney, I was 10 years older than him to the week. Um, so, uh, which meant I used to, and there, was, there was only one girl in our family, Pauline, and she was next. She was only two years old at night. So I meant uh, when Aiden was being minded, it was me. I'd used to wheel him around the pram and we'd be hanging around with a gang of lads playing football and I'd have to bring Aiden with me and Aiden in the pram at the side of the pitch or whatever. Um, so we so we were very close. We were very close. And then he was killed in an awful tragedy. Terrible. By the way, there was another woman killed in the crash. He was driving a company van and um, it's a broad daylight coming out of Minute. The van had been fixed by a mechanic. And funny enough, the last time I saw Aiden was three days before he was killed. And I was up at my mother's and he had the van with him. And he was out. He was he saying to me, look at the state of that van they had me in. And they're, they're due to get me a new one. But anyway, the, the steering chassis collapsed. And the car, Aiden's van careered under a truck. And the truck pushed Aiden's van back, killing him instantly, by the way. And pushed Aiden's van back and under a, a, a coach that was coming behind him and that was full of Spanish students and one of their teachers was killed. So there was two people killed in that. But he was only 25. He'd just been moved in with his girlfriend. Um, he was doing well. A great, great walker again, doing, doing well. Um, like I discovered things after he died when we were going through his stuff. Like he'd written to was a Arlo Guthrie. Arlo Guthrie. You wouldn't remember Arlo Guthrie. Was it Woody Guthrie, Arlo? They were famous American folk singers of, of um, walking songs, the, the union songs, not a carry And um, he, I, rem- I know he loved Arlo Guthrie because he had all his albums. And then I discovered a letter that Arlo Guthrie had sent to Aiden. Aiden had written to Arlo Guthrie in the States and said, Love your work. I discovered he had shares bought in different companies. Um, so he'd a bit he'd a bit of go on him, so and I was the one unfortunately and that day I was in work. I was in RT at the time and I was presenting what was not lifeline, there's another problem. It was on at the same time as Lifeline and I remember in the half one the half one news bulletin hearing there's been a tragic a car accident and two people are dead. I said, Oh my god And then at three o'clock as I came upstairs they increased the the chaplain and RTE was sitting at my desk and wondering why he was there. And a few of my friends were there and they said, we've bad news, Aiden has been killed in the car crash. 
And the hardest thing I ever had to do in all my living life was go up to tell my mother that Aiden was dead. That's what I had to do. Um, I still, still find it difficult to talk about it. To knock on the door and your mother opens and you have to tell her that her youngest son is dead. Those type of memories don't leave you, do they, Joe? No, they don't. No, I vividly, I can vividly see it. It was, a, it was in August. It was a lovely summer's day. I remember as I was even Archie to go up, I wanted to know where my mother was, so I rang the neighbours and said, where's Mabel? And he said, oh, she's sitting at the back in, on her chair, it's a lovely sunny day. And I said, it was Deirdre Carroll, the neighbours since deceased, unfortunately, and I said, Deirdre, would you be around if I, I'm going to go up and tell Mabel that Aidan has been killed, and I need to get a few of the neighbours in to be with her while, before while we get our sisters over and our mother and mother over but anyway, her life changed forever that day. What is your most uh, beloved childhood memory? <laughs> I think it was getting, I think it was uh, Christmas, of course, but I think it was getting a state trooper outfit for Christmas. <laughs> a little American, the state trooper. Just, they got there in the news again, aren't they? They're the National Guard now, aren't they, so to speak, in the state. I'm just getting them. There was a helmet with it and a badge and a jacket and a gun. And I just, I probably was at the age where I appreciated it more, but that's, you know, I've, I've not, not the happy memories. A lot of them do revolve around Christmas and it was a very busy household. You see, there was three bedrooms and my, when I bring my three up to, when we're up in Mabel, I often get them to go up and stand in the bedroom where the five boys were lived. And they just, they just break down laughing. It's so small. Now my lads are tall as well. They keep wondering where we all fitted, and there was a triple bunk bed and a large double bed, and but there was no wardrobe, started chest of drawers or whatever. But anyway, do you think? Oh, we've had happy memories. Yeah. Do you think your childhood, which you know at times was challenging, but obviously you had lots of great moments too. But do you think it encouraged you to get out and make something oh, of yeah. your life? Absolutely. Absolutely. I was determined to try and make something for myself. I was determined, and I, I don't know how I discovered this. I, I discovered earlier on that, that education was the key. I used to read about Conor Cruz O'Brien and people who were in the public eye, and every one of them had, been, had got a third level education. Every single one of them, almost without exception. So I was determined when I did my leaving cert, I knew nothing about I knew nothing about and No one in our school did, knew nothing about it getting into third level. It wasn't even talked about. It was presumed none of us would be going to third level. And um, I got a job in an advertising agency and while I was there, I got involved in youth work. And that's when I met people who'd been to third level. And I can remember a few of them saying, why, why, why haven't you gone to third level? You're well able for it. And I decided to go on to third level. And that's, I decided in there as well to take up the issue of inequality. I was really, really... Uh, I was really uh, angry at the fact that here was Trinity College, this incredible resource in the, in the centre, incredible resource in the centre of Dublin. And there was only three people from Ballyfermot, which was at the other end of the bus route. There was only three people from Ballyfermot in the, what, there'd be about 7,000 students, 10, maybe more, there's not there's not many more there at that stage. And I just, and that's why I got so annoyed this year about the leaving cert and predictive grading. The only reason down south we have predictive grading, Rodney, is to, is to decide who doesn't go to college. It's all about giving people points. 
because of supply and demand. And I was saying, my argument was, surely everyone this year, given the awful year, especially with that age group, surely everyone who applied, the shortfall is only about 20,000, I think, that would not get in. Surely everyone should be given. Maybe, you can't give everyone their first choice, but maybe between jigs and we have given the first and second choice. Next year, a lot of the teachers are going to be online anyway. So surely if, if someone online, Zoom calls to 10, Zoom lecture to 10 people is the exact same as a Zoom lecture to 100 people. And that's why I wanted to get rid. I just thought it'd be an incredible transformation. We said, like, just as we said, say about second level, everyone should be entitled to go to second level, which they are, obviously. Um, and I can say, but everyone who wants, it's not compulsory, but everyone who wants to go to third level, because you can guarantee the people that are going to be kept out by this predictive rating will be working class kids. That is the whole, and I was really struck by some of the commentators who were, were reacting to what I said, saying it'd be unworkable. Um, they, they'd be upset after first year, they didn't get it the second year. And almost in the same breath, they all referenced the fact, without even having to think about it, because of the sense of excitement, that their own children were in third level. It was an, and it was almost as if we're not letting we're not letting more into third level because that might devalue our degrees. So and I, I firmly believe there was a kind of oh hang on a minute. Almost almost uh, it's like the class nature of Irish society is so awful. And it was almost oh well, hang on, we're not letting uh, riff raff into Trinity or even though Trinity, by the way, have a good access program, very good one. Uh, but I just thought, I, I thought I was going to get more support from academics. That one academic, that's a few, maybe they don't listen to live now, but that one academic, a few politicians came out and said it's a good idea, but that one academic said, yeah, let's, let's try this. Let's, let's change our thinking in the world we live in. Um, because academic life now at third level is pretty, is pretty comfortable. So when you, know, you you were a social worker, of course, and a probation officer, yeah, yeah. and no doubt, you know that's that was your mindset even back then as well to to look out for 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 the little people. Yeah. Uh, what did yeah. what did that period of time teach you about life and about people? Well, I love people. I'm a natural. I think I have anyway. A natural. My my, Gabe Owen said to me, your your opening point with people is that you like them. Um, some people's opening uh, position with people is that they distrust them or that they don't like. But my opening response is I I like them and I respect them. Um, I think everyone and I know this through life and everyone not not only has one story, it's a hundred stories. Um, and and I also through social work and probation, I also. Realize that people go through periods in their life where they can change. They can actually change. They realize, you know, like there's, there's very few, it's a terrible thing to say in terms of, um, a terrible, a terrible way to put it, but there's very few criminals who are still actively involved in criminality in their 40s. And if they are involved in criminality in their 40s, it's serious, serious criminality. Whereas a lot of the youngsters I was dealing with in probation, invariably youngsters, they were petty criminals. They were they were bright, but they were stupid in what they were doing. The cost, that the the punishment that society would inflict on them for robbing a handbag or whatever, which is wrong, which is wrong, uh, was much greater. You know, the, the consequences were so off. Now, I did have one, I remember I was really strict on anyone 
to engage in violence. Anyone. Um, if I remember, I was, we, our officers used to be just off Grafton Street and I had this guy who was put on probation for shoplifting, whatever, and he came in and I said, we'll try and get an ankle or a fast course, a training course, it's called it down here. And he said, oh yeah, I'd definitely do that and I'd be definitely keen. I said, and as he was leaving, I just had a, an instinct about him. So I decided, not my stupidity, Rodney, I followed him. Okay, I went uh, and I knew he was going up through, we used to be a mall there just off Grafton Street. And within five minutes, I, I walked into this mall and there he was attacking a security guard. He tried to rob something and was challenged. He was attacking a security guard with the business end of an industrial sweeping brush. Right? And I remember shouting at him. I, the main power you have as a probation officer in terms of getting, is that you can put people into prison. But I, I, I remember shouting at him, I won't give his name, I said, you are going back to prison. You were going to prison today. Now, I couldn't arrest him, Randy. I'd have to go back to the guard. And he dropped the brush and ran. But when I saw him inflict that violence, I said to myself, no, no, um, this uh, violence is it's just something. And that's from growing up in Ballyferm as well, witnessing it. It's just something that has a visceral, has a visceral response to it. I really have. So I, I wasn't, I wasn't a softy. I wasn't a softy anyway. You described yourself as a Christian socialist. What does that mean? Yeah, that was way back. Who was that? Who was I thinking about then? Tony Blair? Or... Yeah, because I was religious. I was. I went to Mass every day in Trinity for some reason. Are you not and religious anymore? I'd be religious. I'd have a belief. I wouldn't be religious in terms of attendance. The last religious service, I, I had a place down in Wexford. We had a mobile home. Now I have a house down there. And the part of Wexford we're in is quite... Um, Church of Ireland, and there's some beautiful Church of Ireland buildings. So I think the last three services I've been at, say, in the last year were in Protestant churches, which are extraordinarily welcoming. Um, no, I wouldn't. I wouldn't wear. I don't wear my religion on my sleeve anyway. Yeah, because I I didn't know what Christian socialist was, and I googled it. <laughs> and, uh, Christian socialists believe capitalism to be rooted in the sin of greed. Do you share yeah. that view? Well, I, I do believe that society, the the only societies that do uh, prosper are capitalist societies. I do believe in encouraging people to work. I've no I've no issue with people having incentives to work, bettering themselves or whatever. I've no no issues with that. The other, which I was never into, the other, um, I wouldn't be mad about capitalism. But what's the alternative? What is the alternative? And I, I, I also believe that I, I do believe I love people who create jobs. I really do. I don't hold with this thing a lot of people do. I, I like Michael O'Leary, for example, in Ryanair. Two reasons why I like him. One is that he's, he creates jobs. He does create jobs in a big way. And two, he pays his taxes in Ireland. Like people that, that's, that's why the, when I talk about access to third level, I, I don't, I'm not in favor of taking people out at third level and putting working class people in. I'm in favour of everyone having a go, everyone having a chance. Right? And Mike, like people say, well, we live in a very unequal society. But the fact of the matter is, if Michael O'Leary left Ireland tomorrow, which he could, that means he wouldn't be paying, I think one year he paid 14 million in income tax. He'd be gone. And if you look at it statistically, he'd be gone with his wealth. So 
Ireland would, in, in that sense, be a more equal country on a, on a graph because you wouldn't have that extreme. Just one example. I don't personalize. He's a nice guy. A robust guy, robust. But um, I think someone like I think someone like Michael O'Leary is really important in terms of creating jobs. And like I, I say, even the small shopkeepers we have on, I'd always ask them, many do you guy? And they'd say four. I'd say, well, that's four families. That's four families who are who are. are so and I'm I'm a big so we did a, used to do a thing on live line called Fiber Friday and that was all about trying to support small businesses. Now I wouldn't I I, I suppose I'm not a Christian socialist anymore. I don't believe it is greed. I believe it's people trying to better themselves. Do you have any personal walls that you've built out of fear? Oh, a good question. I know. Probably afraid to tell you. I know it. I'm, I'm, I'd be very insecure. That's the other thing, which is I'd, I'd never have a sense of um, that I was in, uh, that I, that I was entitled to a job or entitled to stuff in life. Is that because of your? You know, that, that's because of your upbringing. That is, you you, yeah, you feel yeah, insecure. It was never, there was never an expectation that I would go to college or anyone. And I was the first to use the Neil Kinnock phrase. I was the first of a thousand generations to go to third level. There was never any expectation that that would happen. Um, so it's fear, and, and, and the business, the business I'm in, at the end, the end of the business I'm in, is entertainment, stroke showbiz, stroke. You're you're only as good as your last program, and it's personality driven, and you have to build up a trust with people. If that trust goes, you're a goner. Um, and I'm, uh, the, the, the the position I'm in in RT is I'm on a contract which can be terminated by the end of this podcast. If they so decided, uh, without any consequences. But um, I, I'm reminded all the time of what Larry Mullen, the drummer in U2, said. He's a great guy, but he was he was voted one year uh, the best drummer in the world by Rolling Stone magazine. And he's been interviewed by by the magazine, and they said to him, "What's what's it like to be the best drummer in the world?" He said, "I wake up most mornings thinking, am I even the best drummer in U2?" we're always we're always in this business I'm not geez I'm not comparing myself to a talent like Larry seriously but in the in the business we're in um, you do wake up every day saying am I even the best drummer in you too but but does your insecurity make you a better broadcaster um, I think it does actually I think um, not just my not just my insecurity but this I think I think I insofar as I don't want to overthink it, but I think I can relate to people more because I've been through a lot of things in my life, both from where I was born, my upbringing, my experiences, leaving school, then going back to third level after three years, becoming a social worker, becoming a probation officer, um, the family I'm from. I just I, I do think that empathy. I think I think I have an empathy there, which is. Which I think is real. I don't do, I don't think, I don't, and I can't stand broadcasters who just, you know, they're contriving an argument. You know, they don't believe the thing, they don't believe not, obviously, so a lot of things they come out, especially at the start of their program to try and get people going. Uh, you know, they're just, they've no more belief in that than the, the man on the moon. No, everything I say, I believe. And you've hosted your program now for almost twenty years. When would you like to call it a day? Have you have you that planned out or thought out? Rodney, but bizarrely, I don't. I I don't think about that because one, I just 
I've, I've been working since I was 13. Um, and I just, I like, I enjoy my work and it's very important to my family in terms of their standard of living and that. Um, and being able to send them to college is really important. Um, no, I don't think about retirement. No, seriously, I don't. I don't, I don't know what I do. What do you think about what's going on in America right now? Oh, it's horrific. Absolutely horrific. I think Trump is, it's, it's monstrous. He is a monster. It's just, it's just so distressing. How can you have someone who you cannot believe? I think it's, I think they've now counted 20,000 individual lies he's told since he became president. And that doesn't count the lies that he has repeated. No, I think, I think one lie he's repeated 147 times. So that's not even counted in the, it's just, it's dispiriting, it's despairing. Like we have at the minute in the world, we have Donald Trump, who for all his, his fault was elected. We have Vladimir Putin, uh, who was another criminal, um, and his opponents, and indeed people in other countries have been killed. He took down a Malaysian aircraft over Ukraine. And then we Shay in China, where China has no free speech, has, has gulag, has arrest people who try and speak out. Uh, and, that, and then in the UK, he was elected by his party, but Boris Johnson has been proven to be a windbag in the last, especially in the tragedy they're going through at the minute, an absolute windbag. This was the man that a few weeks before, tragically, he himself ended up in intensive care, was boasting that he was going around shaking hands with people in a COVID war. Like, so this, this, this quartet is just, it's, it's a really worrying time for the world with this quartet in charge. And luckily we have Angela Merkel, we have uh, Macron, and then when you go to Brazil, there's another, it's into a quintet of lunatics. Adelino is just, he's Trump, Trump with a, with a, an even deeper sometimes. If you could interview Donald Trump, what would you ask him? I'd ask him, why do you lie so much? Why does he have to lie so much? Why does he have to lie so much? It's just... How does Leo Varadkar compare there to all of those leaders? Any Irish politicians in a different league, North and South, totally different league. I don't think I don't think anyone would doubt the sincerity of Leo Radcar, Michal Martin, Mary Lou, Arlene Foster, um, Michelle O'Neill, um, the other uh, Eamon Ryan, you know, the, the Alan Kelly. Um, I, I just they're, they're on a different play, and you know we okay, there's different policies, different ways of approaching things, and different ways, different ways of prioritizing things, or even even achieving things. But I don't think anyone, if, if, if any of them speaking this week, would doubt this time at this time of the world would doubt their sincerity. You have three children, Joe, uh, mm. triplets, in fact, and they, they are they hate they, they hate being called triplets. Ronan, Ellen, and Sean. Do you remember their yeah. birth and what impact did that yeah, have yeah. on on you and your Absolutely. wife, June? Yeah, it was yeah, it was terrible because we discovered that there was going to be three of them. Shortly before they were born, um, we knew it was going to be, they, they would need extra staff, obviously. They need three teams. So they decided it was going to be nine o'clock on a Tuesday morning. So, and June was in the hospital for 
for 12 weeks at that stage, which was just 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 to make sure nothing happened. And she, she her, her major achievement was when the, the three lads were born, um, they were the longest gestation of triplets in Ireland up to that time. Because June had basically been a terrible, boring thing. She'd taken to the bed, and when they took her into the rotunda and put her into a bed, because I remember we went in to see, it's around January, we went in to see the or Griney, whatever, and uh, June happened to tell him. He said, June, you look very tired. You know, I was cutting the grass this morning. He said, what? He said, I'm cutting the grass. He said, you're not going home. He said, you're not, what are you doing cutting the grass when you're expecting triplets in, in 12 weeks? So she was there for the 12 weeks in, in the rotunda, and that helped. Yeah, it was a great day. And they're good, they're good. They're good lads, yeah. And how often do you tell them how you feel about them? I do. You know what I do a lot? I text them a lot and tell them I love them. You know what I mean? You text, I think they know. I think they know I'm not about them. I'm in awe. They, they beat me at every argument. Every argument. Like, I'm quite surprised that like, what they've become. Like, one of them is an economist and a policy analyst in, in the civil service. The other fella is a consultant in life sciences in Accenture. And Alan is a highly regarded primary school teacher who'd be a principal if I had me way in before she's 30, because she's got the ability. So, yeah, and I, the thing is, you don't. Like someone said to me the other day when I was telling him what Sean was doing, he said, does that not remind you of somebody? I said, no, who? He said, you, you do. Like he was, he's big into education. He, two of them, luckily enough, got forced in Trinity, but I, I only got a two, two. Um, and Alan did extraordinarily well in the evenings. Well. Even though there was no, there was no hot housing or helicopter parenting. Anyway, they surprise you. They constantly surprise you. That's what I love about your kids. What is the most defining moment of your life so far? Uh, the, the, I'd say the children, the birth of the children. Funnily enough, I always had the. It was it was triplets of Bonnie Fan, but I always had a, always mesmerised by them, and I. When we had them, I almost felt it was destiny. And I also believe, this, this is what I say when people say, is there a God? I said, whoever decided to give June, me, and triplets uh, knew what they were doing because she is so organized. And so she ran a great house and a great network and a great system. You said recently in relation to COVID-19, remember family, community, friends, mm. neighbours, they will get us through times of no money. Is this the simplest truth that you can express in words or do you have yeah, any other yeah, pieces I, of wisdom that you couldn't do without? No, I, I always say that. I've, I've been doing a lot of video speeches for graduation ceremonies over the last few weeks and I say that to them. You know, the... the, the um, that, that people and friendship and community and parish that will get you through times of uh, no money, better than money would ever get you through times of no no family, no friends, no community, no parish or whatever. The other thing I've been saying a lot to them is that uh, the world is in each one of us. If the world is in each one of us, which it is, well then you have the power to change that world. Every Lifeline program begins with one single voice. Then one voice at the other end of the line and say it goes from there. 
99 is not a hundred. 99 is not a hundred. One makes, one makes a difference. One makes a difference. And if the world is in each one of us, then we've the power, excuse me, we've the power to change that world. I can't let you go without asking you about normal people and some of the oh, most yeah. incredible phone calls that you've been receiving yeah, in, in just, recent yeah, weeks. But, but Rodney, the bizarre thing is, after, I was looking back on it. Anyway, we started covering coronavirus. The first call was in January. This is before it was even declared a pandemic. And it was from a Chinese restaurant owner in Dublin who was upset that someone came into his restaurant and said, oh, how do we, how do I not get the China virus in here? So he rang and said, it's nothing to do with Chinese restaurants or whatever. So, so we've done about 75 live programs since then. Okay. One of those programs, one of them was about normal people. Okay. But it, but it made me, it got us into the New York Times, the New Yorker, Newsweek, the, the London Telegraph, the Guardian, because of, and it was, I remember saying in the day, I want this to be a respectful debate because I'm very conscious that in the social referendums we've had in the Republic in the last few years, they have been quite close. There is a significant group of people who have a different opinion of, which they're entitled to. And I remember saying on the day, you know, people who are disliking normal people and the, the sex scenes in it, I remember saying to a few of them at the end, now, do you think you've been treated respectfully, that your point of view has been treated respectfully? And they all said yes. We had no complaints about it from people who were putting forward the other view, which is they don't believe that they don't like sex and telly. What happened as well that day, there was a few phrases used by a few callers which took off. Lenny Abrahamson from the director of Natural People was watching. We were on webcam some days. And he's watching the, me in the studio and he happened to screen grab, because he is a brilliant director, you see. He happened to screen grab me with my head in my hands. Now, I don't know if it was related to the home of people. I suspect it was. But, um, and he, he tweeted that and that's become a painting and a meme and whatever else you call it. And I see even someone today is using it. It's, a, it's a, an image of exasperation. <laughs> Someone is using it today in a completely different context, which is fine. So that would, that, that went well. And you see, the other thing as well is, which, which I was annoyed about up to that, that normal people was getting universal, just before it started, was getting universal positive promotion, especially in RTE. I don't mean just mean commercially, because they needed people to watch it for advertising, I suppose. But it was getting, they were being interviewed on, um, the directors and who were lovely people. I've never met them, sure they are. But they were being interviewed nonstop on every RTE program. Uh, and it was all your geniuses, which I'm sure they are, you're brilliant. But no, I don't know if people have seen, seen the program. And I kind of said, well, you know, that's, is there a debate in this? Is there a debate in, in, and I remember saying my opening remarks in that day were, I said it has got, well, now we had got calls, we had got calls. I said, how's that universally positive? Um, coverage. Um, and I, 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 I remember saying on every radio station, and I checked myself. I said, "No, every radio program." So that's that's. And, but the calls were—they were genuine. They were genuine people who believed, and it was just some of their phrases they used that day. We took off, but anyway, it's made. I I, te- I text Sally Rooney. It's probably not. They're having a celebration for her in New York. Zoom celebration. 
that she almost single-handedly saved the, the publishing industry and, and books. She's number one in the States, well, by the way, as well as the UK, as yeah. well as here, even though she's the book is never going But um, I remember I asked to send her a text that would be read to her at this publisher's meeting, and I said, Sally, my daughter loved the book, which she did, and well done, and you've given people insights and entertainment at a difficult time. But I said, I just want to thank you personally for making me a household name. Because that's what you did, especially especially among my, my uh, daughter's friends. Well, last question, Joe. If you left this life tomorrow, how would you like to be remembered? Uh, but I don't, I, I'm not, not a great believer in if you're gone, you're gone. But through my children, that's, that's the only image I have Rodney, if ever I had an image about my funeral, is my. I remember actually shortly after my children were born, I was out in Dublin Airport and I was waiting at the collection box. And I saw these three people come through in black seats, black suits. And not only were they obviously brothers, I'm looking at them, they were triplets. They were the same age. And they were coming home for a funeral. And I suspect they were coming home for the funeral of the parents with their demeanor. And I, I have that image still in my head. All, all I can see at my funeral is, apart from my wife, obviously, is um, the three children shouldering the coffin. And I'd like them to speak at the funeral. I'd like to tell them, I'd like, I'd like them to tell me a few things before I die, but that is, that is my image. I see no one else there. I see no one else there from my family in terms of so my legacy my legacy is 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 them and even like one of my songs is again uh, again came up on the my blind side is brilliant at art which i like i'm not brilliant at it but i like and like one of his buddies was in the house here last night and he puts on a face mask beautiful face mask printed you know and i said who designed that and he said ronan did he put it up on our website and you can buy it off through a generic website, you can buy a face mask, a flask, a cup, a T-shirt, a tea towel with about 10 of his different drawings on it, which I completely blindsided me. You had no After idea. The other, fellow, the other fellow blindsided me, Sean, with his, with his you can talk about, uh, like slavery is in the news at the minute, racism in Ireland in the news, that's a big, big, big topic on Liveline at the minute is the phrase is, um, that people are using. I'm not white, but I'm Irish. Um, and we've now reached a stage, uh, demographically that people who came to Ireland from different countries, say 25 years ago, they have children and their children are now 18, 90, 20. They, they are Irish, but they're not white. They've experienced racism and they're now talking about they're on today in live and they're on yesterday in live and they've been on nearly 10 days now giving uh, an incredible example. My legacy is my children. Joe Duffy, thank you so much.